Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And as you know, Jen, I have a little bit of news. Please tell me <laughs> your news. Some of you listeners may know that if you follow me on social media, I became engaged over the weekend. Congratulations, Kim France. Congratulations. Your ring is beautiful. Thank you. Tell me about how this happened. Well, we had decided a while ago, you know, that we that we would probably get married, that that's what we wanted to do. And so, you know, but Paul was not divorced yet. So we were not going to get engaged before he was divorced. We picked a ring out a while ago. And Paul decided, for reasons that are only known to him, that the safest place to keep that ring would be in the glove compartment of the car. No. <laughs> I swear to you. And I would occasionally say, like, do you really think that's, like, the place for it? Like, it just seems... You know, not right. Wait, so you knew it was in there? I knew it was in the glove compartment of oh the car. God. Yeah. Oh my God. This is how middle-aged people get engaged. Continue. Continue. So, you know, he found out he was divorced a little while mm -hmm. ago, got the letter from the lawyers, and we were hanging out it's Friday night. We were in Philly. And I just said to Paul, I was like, because I didn't know when he was going to do it. I was in no rush, but I was like, you know, honey, my left ring finger just feels wrong somehow. It feels, it, it's almost itchy. I feel like the absence of something. I don't know what it is, but it's just this one thing, my, my left ring finger. So he's like, ha ha ha. The next time we're at the car, I will propose to you. So <laughs> we got up in the morning and we went to go meet his sister for lunch. And he was like, honey, I think there's something for you in the glove compartment. Why don't you look for it? Which was, you know, cute. Would have been cuter if I didn't know. It was yes, there. totally. But, you know, so then I was like very cute, and I was like, "Oh, a CD. How did this get here? Oh, the registration. Thank you for that." <laughs> and then finally, I opened up the box with the ring in it, and he was like, "Do you want to marry me?" And I said yes, and that was it. It was we were like literally like just driving around in Philadelphia. That's nice. That's nice. How do you feel? Do you feel different? Mm, mildly different. Mildly different. Mildly, not really, but a little different. Yeah, it feels a little different. It feels like, you know, because also everybody's reaction makes it feel right, different. Right, right. I have to say, I was thinking a lot um, 
Because this was a, this was a sweet, intimate engagement between the two of you, and it had been building for a while, and you both knew you were going to do it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the pageantry of many engagements, which. Even though I can be like broken up, like I can start crying if I see somebody get engaged on like a commercial even, I honestly mm-hmm. could not have fathomed that for myself. I don't know how I would have reacted if like there was like, you know, I have friends who's like significant others, like planned scavenger hunts for them, like all these fucking elaborate things. I can't, it's like a dog whistle. I couldn't really hear. Like even in Lucky when I would come in and everybody, like you have an engagement ring, like you would just see like a mob of women surrounding yes. one woman and they're all squealing. Like I never could fucking hear that dog whistle. Continue. <laughs> no, I could never hear that dog whistle either. And my first, you know, the first time I got engaged, it was a little bit more of a, I mean, it was, it was a pretty quiet moment, but also a little bit more of a moment, like a little bit more of a story right. to tell. But, you know, my brother, my younger brother, Todd is a photographer. You know, he, he, some of the time gets hired to go hide in some bushes and wait for couples. It, it's crazy. I mean, and if you watch any TikTok at all, like people like invent new trends for proposals yeah. and trends for weddings. Like there's this thing where the first look became a big thing between a bride and groom the first time they see each other. But then other people were like, we're not going to do a first look. We're going to do a first touch because we don't want to see each other beforehand. So they stand on two sides of a corner and hold hands. I know it's like, I vomit. can't, it's I like can't, vomit. I'm making a vomit face listeners. You can't, I can't, this is sort of like wedding industrial complex. I can't, it just upsets me. No, it's as upsetting as butterboards. Oh, we have not even talked about butterboards, but yet you intuited that I would hate a butterboard, <laughs> which I fucking hate a butterboard. <laughs> it's a terrible germy, germy, germy idea. Oh God. Oh God. I mean, if you want to sit at home alone with your butterboard so- and watch Shark Tank, so gross. It's so gross. And you know that butter's melting. That butter's gonna fucking yes. melt with all its whatever it pistachios on top of it. <laughs> I fucking hate it. I saw it once and I was like, that is vile. That is no, it's the dumbest thing. That is ever not was. okay. Um well, congratulations. And also congratulations for it being both an engagement that was official, but also not like some big prom. It's not a prom, but you know what I mean? Just like a floofy. Yes, no, I do. I do. It's not going to be that way. And, you know, we're going to get married at city hall. That seems pretty much like a deal and then have a party. But I just feel really clear, strongly, like anything I did one way, my first wedding, I will do the other way. My second wedding. Yes. I felt similar to that. I also got married in City Hall. City Hall is fun to get married in. I was a witness once. It, it, it's very sweet. It's like they call it the DMV of love. Yeah. The best part about getting married in City Hall was seeing all the other like just brides and grooms and brides and brides and grooms and grooms of all stripes, just like couples of all stripes getting married. And that was like waiting because you have to wait for a long time till they call you. You have to wait a while. Yeah. You have to wait a while till they call your name. And I felt the same way when I was a witness. It was so fun. I like, I found myself actually walking up to people and saying, are you the one getting yeah. married today? Like something about the atmosphere just makes you think you can talk to strangers. Yeah. It's very lovely. And the other thing I didn't realize about getting married at city hall, although I guess it depends on the city hall is that the rooms that you do it in are not that small. You can actually invite a few people to come yeah, with totally. you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my 
my parents were there, Alex's parents were there, and we had um, on our siblings and a couple, we had a couple of witnesses too. Um, so we had like, you know, it was like as, as much of a wedding as, as we wanted to have at that time. Yeah. If, if any of you listeners have ideas for where I might find a dress I might like, Ooh. that's not, I don't know what, I'm, I need two things, probably. Yes. City hall outfit, party outfit. You could wear like a little suit to City Hall. I know. I thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, if that makes you feel bad, the face you're making right now makes me think. No, because a friend of mine was like, oh, don't wear a suit. That's so done. But I think it could be really cute. Who cares if it's done? I mean, it depends, you know, it depends on what you're comfortable in. Just be comfortable. Like that's, that's the key. Yeah. No, I agree. Gives a shit. We're too old to be uncomfortable. Ew. <laughs> yeah. I know, like whatever I wear is going to either have a very low or a platform heel yes. in the footwear yes. department. Yes, totally, totally. Um, oh, speaking of clothes, I have a hot tip that I texted you over the weekend because I work every weekend. Um, so I have been, you know, we've been talking a lot about sweaters. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And I texted you this, Madewell men's sweaters are super inexpensive and super cool and super great. I have bought a crew neck. I've now bought two crew neck Madewell sweaters for men. They look like when you would steal like your boyfriend's sweater in college. Mm -hmm. And just like, it's a little bit oversized. The fit's not like feminine at all. It's like got like a broader shoulder on it. And they just have like a nice slouchy just like a nice slouchy sweater look. Like I can't say it more that like, it looks like you stole a boyfriend's sweater. I'm really psyched. And my sweater, because Madewell is constantly having sales, especially in the stores. My sweater was 60 bucks. I was like, that is a fucking deal. Yeah. No, the one thing I will say about Madewell sweaters, it doesn't bother me. It bothers some is that it, they frequently have um, acrylic in them as well. Oh, see, so yeah, I don't care. They probably do have a curl. I don't give a shit about that. I also need a thinner, like they're kind of thin and I needed, this one is anyway, I needed, a th I need a thinner sweater. I'm in LA. Like I just need a, like a thinner layer that's going to keep me warm. But I thought that was a good tip because also I feel like their sales are better than the women's sales because you know, men's clothes, they always fucking, they don't buy clothes in the same way. They don't buy clothes. And are they going to buy clothes from a brand that was originally a female brand? I have no idea. There's a, the reason this happened was because I was freezing one recent Saturday morning and there's only one store near where I write and it's Madewell Men's. And I was like, why is there a Madewell Men's here? Who shops in this fucking <laughs> place? And turns out me, I shop there. <laughs> <laughs> I shop there in the, in the unisex, uh, the unisex styling of, of Madewell men's. Um, what else is happening with you this week? That's well, I gave you my headline. All right. I mean, it's a good headline. That's the headline. Everything else it's been sort of, you know, it was very nice to sort of spend a day or two just letting all of the well wishes wash over us. Good, good. Well, we have a really great show today. I was really, I, I really like um, Lynn Steger Strong's writing. I loved her novel Want. And when I saw she had another book coming out, which just came out last Tuesday, when this airs, it'll have been out about six days. It's called Flight. And I've read a hundred pages of it. I love it. And I really recommend it. But she's just a smart, soulful writer. And um, I've been wanting to talk to her for a while. So I was glad to have the opportunity. Yeah, it was a great chat. Yep. All right, let's get into it. Our guest today is Lynn Steger Strong. Lynn is the author of the novels Hold Still, Want, and her newest Flight, which is about a family coming together for the holidays, which came out last week and which I am currently devouring. 
Lynn's nonfiction and criticism has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Paris Review, and elsewhere. She's also a writing professor who has taught in a number of places, including at Columbia University. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're thrilled to have you. And so I love your writing. You're one of my favorite writers and your fiction particularly. And I inhaled one in two days, similarly in love with flight. I'm about a hundred pages in, and that's only because it came light last week. Um, so I'm noticing as I'm reading flight, the style of your novels is so, so different. Can you talk about what inspired this third novel? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I both know what you mean and also feel like this one little silly lady in my room doing basically the same thing over and over again. And so maybe a way to talk about the books just as sort of, again, made by the same person and, and in some ways sort of circling the same things is that, is that if want was about everything feels broken <laughs> and, and how do we live in the face of everything feeling broken, then I think flight is like, okay, sure, <laughs> it's broken, but I still have to love my kids. I still want to pass something down. I still want to be able to believe in something. You know, there was there was a moment like not long, I've sort of told this story before, but not long after Want came out, we sort of, we lost our apartment and we had to leave New York and it was, it was pretty hard. Um, and I, and I said to my friend, I was like, okay, I have cycled through every other emotion. The only thing I have left is hope. Mm. That's what I'm going with <laughs> you know? right. because it was yeah. just, yeah. So I think, I think want was, you know, again, if want was trying to give language to this sort of feeling in my teeth that was desperate and it wouldn't go away flight is sort of like, okay, but there are actually quite a lot of us and we're still here and everything feels scarce and bad and we can be petty, but also, right? And I think flight is sort of the but also. Yeah. It makes me think of a quote that I read from you, which is this, it's cool and in vogue to be a woman, as a woman to be angry right now. It feels scary just to want to write a book about how people love each other. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I was, and I, and I still am quite quite angry um, in my everyday life. But I think, you know, I, pre-anger, I was sad. And anger felt so active as opposed to sadness. But then eventually my anger came to feel just as ineffectual as my sadness. And so I think, again, I, I am still angry, but, but the things that I'm angry at are largely these sort of abstract, sort of harumphing systems. Yeah that I can continue to try to talk about and think about and make a little rupture in. But the problem is, is the anger becomes so all-consuming that then it sort of spreads into all these other parts of your life that are supposed to not be filled with anger. Like other people, you know? Like I think, you know, there's there's a thing I think I'm interested in writing about and, and thinking about and talking about. And also a thing that I've just like lived through is, is just what scarcity and, and I'm, you know, I am privileged in about a thousand million different ways, but I'm in two, two modes of, of sort of being and trying to make a living, right. Academia and publishing that feel particularly scarce. Yes. Right. And, and I yes. think the thing that scarcity does to our feeling like, I don't think this is actually true, but to our feeling like we can't take care of one another. Mm -hmm. It's why sometimes, you know, like there was a job I really wanted last year 
and I didn't get it. And there was a moment I was talking to someone about it. And I was like, I just don't want to have to hate anybody through this, right? Like I just, I want to be able to get out of this and want this job so badly and understand that the reason I didn't get this job isn't because this other person, you know, the reason I feel so desperate about this job is that desperation is not the fault of the person who got it. That desperation is the fault of this larger, deeply broken system, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, there are moments where we're publishing, especially it can feel a little bit like the hunger games, you know, and like only one or two of us are going to make it out alive. Yeah. But again, like, that's not like, I love other writers, you know, like I love them. Like my best friends are other writers. Yeah. So anyways, so I think, I think that's, that's the space where I am still angry, but I think my anger was misdirected. And now I guess I think I'm getting sort of long-winded, but I think one other thing that I've thought a lot about, especially since Want came out, is that just because you feel powerless doesn't mean you can't do damage. Mm, Wow. And I think that like, as an adjunct professor, I felt very, very powerless. I still feel very powerless, but I have students in the classroom all of the time that, that I have actually an incredible amount of power right. over and, and influence over. And I need to sort of slough off that feeling of powerlessness yeah. when I walk into that classroom because the power that I have with them is, is I mean, not to be like Spider-Man, but like it's a real responsibility. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. It sounds like within these two books, and I this isn't a fully formed thought, but this is what I'm feeling. Because Want was so powerful in terms of that feeling of scarcity, in terms of that feeling of, fuck, I'm an adult and I still haven't made it and I don't have enough money and I'm so afraid all the time and all of that, right? And it sounds like in the process of writing these two books, you've come to terms with your agency, maybe? And I'm wondering, because this is this is so interesting, because creative people are often... Unless you're selling out and you're doing something you don't love, right? We're often in this place of precarity. We're often fine. I mean, you know, we've talked to musicians, we've talked to right, like we're often in this place of financial precarity, which does make us feel helpless, right? It sounds like you've come to some terms with your own agency. And I, I'd love to for you to talk about that. I don't know what the question is. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think I mean, I think, you know, again, I think I think if want was sort of because because whether anybody cares but me, I think that everything I write is in some ways about sort of where I am. And this is a very high, you know, like takes a lot of hubris for me to say this, I think, but like where I am with my relationship to what art can be. Right. And I think again, some of want was that sort of disappointment. And, and I think there's also like, there's so much shame tied up with it, at least for me in terms of like exactly what you said, Jen, like did I think I was going to be financially secure and making the life choices that I made? You know, like there's, there's sort of shame in being like, I knew, I thought I knew the choices. Right. But first it's worth saying that like, I think living those choices and knowing those choices are different things, but then sort of beyond that. And I love, I do love the idea that you said of agency beyond that is this idea of like, so if, if want was sort of like, Oh shit, Books mean so much to me, but what that translates into my actual life or into other people's actual lives or in the actual world is so much less than I thought it was. And I was so sad and I was so angry about that. And yet what's, what's interesting is that they still, they continue to mean something to me. Or like I came up against their limits. I looked at their limits. I was sad about their limits and I doubled down. You know, mm. and I was like, I still love them. And I think, you know, in, in part through COVID, like I, 
we, we lost our apartment. It sucked. We didn't, you know, we were sort of itinerant or whatever. I mean, again, like incredibly lucky and privileged and loved and, and were given places to stay. And, and, and in a lot of ways, it was a really lovely experience just in terms of how people who loved us helped us. Yeah. And, and I think that too, like is very much in flight, but also I just, I wasn't sleeping. Like I think most people weren't sleeping and I was reading just like for pleasure and just the, the intimacy of books, the sort of the grace of the space of books pre COVID and post COVID I have been sort of had been sort of obsessively going to see visual art and it, and it still felt magic and special to me. Yeah. And so, so I think the agency is this understanding of like, okay, art can't do everything. It can do much less than I wish it could, but it can do something. Right. And within it, I can do something. And how can I continue to just try to be better? And again, it's like, you know, it's one of those things. It's like my friend is, Ramon, we talked about, he's finishing a book right now. And I keep saying like, this is the best part. Like, don't, you know, like he wants to be done. And he's like, I want to be done. I want to be done. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is as good as it gets. Yep. Before you hand it, yeah. Before you give it any out in the world, before you're promoting it, before when it's just yours. Yeah. It's like you have, yep. you are in those sentences and you have this power inside of those sentences. And that is as good as this ridiculous thing that we've chosen to do gets. Yeah. So just stay another week. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you do all that? How do you play the game side of it? I mean, once you do turn the book in and once you do deal with your editor and once you do have to be, you know, emailing everyone who has any press connections to see if they'll help you, how do you, how do you balance that? And the gross things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, (laughs) I'm still trying to figure, I mean, honestly, like I think, I think friends, there was a moment in grad school. It was like the last week of grad school. And I somehow managed to give birth twice in three years of graduate school. So I was a bit of a a wreck in grad school. And there was this moment we were at, we were talking about something or we were like at some panel and I missed most of them. And they were like, blah, blah. They said something about networking. And I was like, oh, shit, you guys, I didn't network. What do I do? Like, I didn't network. And they were like, no, they just mean made, make friends. Like, and you made friends. So you're okay. You know? And I think, like, that can feel weird and gross. But also, I think, actually, people you genuinely love are also the people who are going to respond the best to your work and vice versa. Right. And so if the networking and then the reaching out to people is coming from a place of no, I legitimate, like, I do not mind writing you this email because I mean every single thing I'm saying in this email. And if the only thing that comes from this email is that, you know, how much I admire you. Cool. Um, I I mean, I, 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 I don't want to oversell because it is, I've done gross things and this sounds like I'm less gross <laughs> than I am. So I want to be like, I want to be honest. I'm, I'm reaching for real. I, but I, I, I do think there's something to that, right? Like I do think that sort of the people you love and that you think of as your friends are then often like the most invested in your work too. And so they're the most willing to sort of help you with the gross stuff. I think 
beyond that, the part of me that that runs 50 miles a week and the part of me that gets like annoyed with myself when I'm having too much fun writing because like I also kind of hate myself, you know, takes pleasure from the ways that like when you have a book coming out, you sit down and you get your little planner and you make your little list and you start checking your little boxes and it feels a little gross, but it also feels like work, right? Well, it feels like control over over a situation that you actually have no control over, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, but I will control this because you have no control over how people are going to respond to your work. Zero. Or if it's going to succeed, if it's going to fail, because a lot of it is timing. A lot of it is luck. A lot of like, but there, there's this artificial idea that we have control over how our work will be perceived. I mean, I remember there's like some, I was on a business book author, like network at one point, and they had a spreadsheet of everything you had to do. And some of it included buying your own copies of your own book because these were wealthy people, right? Like call this 1-800 number, whatever. <laughs> but I'm not I'm not kidding, okay? But No, I'm not surprised. But I checked everything that was in my financial means to, to do when I did it. Yeah. And my book did fine. You know, it was yeah. like not that great and it was received by the way it was received. Yeah. But it does, there's no magic bullet is what I'm saying. And so we we create a thing and then we're told, well, if you only do, if you're a good girl and you do these things, it will mm-hmm. succeed. And if you don't, it won't. <laughs> you're just right. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, but I think you're right, Jen. Like, I feel like it's this sort of placating the miasmic sense of anxiety by giving yourself tasks and then acknowledging it's totally absurd. Like, actually, I think one of the things that's been the most helpful to me this round is that I've been writing a lot of criticism in the past year and a half. And I have just been so totally in love. Like, first of all, it's been really fun because it helps me like deeply read books instead of just be cranky that one book gets more attention or less attention or whatever, but, but just sort of see the exciting things that colleagues of mine are doing. Mm -hmm. But then to also see the ways that like the books, a book will completely light me up and I'll be obsessed with it and it will get no attention at all. Right. And then another book, I'll be like, yeah, okay, cool. You know, high five. And it'll explode. Right. So it's just like, it sort of affirms because I think when it's you, it's hard not to be like, right. But when it's other people, I think it's a lot clearer or you see somebody gets like a, a sort of raw deal and the wrong person is assigned the review for the times, right? And that sort of like, that starts a trajectory. It's, it's the just, inside baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. it just, you, you see how arbitrary it is, which like you say is, is horrifying yeah. and upsetting on the one hand, but it's also just like, okay, so just make another book, you know, yeah, because that's it. you just, yeah. That's all you can do. It reminds me, this whole, this whole thing reminds me of when I was selling a book and it was about Condé Nast and me having my breakdown. And I was like, you know, I, I was in meetings and I'd say like, you know, this happened, that happened. I lost half my friends. So one of the publishing houses that was interested called my agent and said, did Kim keep the other half of her friends? <laughs> like, will there be anybody to publicize this book? <laughs> yeah. Like we're not interested in this story, bitch, if you don't have fancy friends. <laughs> no, it was exactly that. I had to kind of respect them because they did not, they, they just said it. God, that's amazing. I mean, it's it's interesting. I sent, I was, I was telling students, like I always tell students sort of like, again, back to this idea of networking, like some of them are sort of really invested in this idea of a mentor. And I'm like, you know, okay, sure, fine. But like, ultimately your colleagues are the only people who are going to fully understand what you're going through because publishing changes so 
quickly. And like, there was a point with my first book, we, we sent it out a couple of times and nobody bought it. And I sent a couple of the rejection letters to one of my professors who was much older than I was. And he sent back this like indignant email where he was like, but they said it was good. So if they said it was good, why aren't they publishing it? I was like, oh, right. Like your, <laughs> your relationship to this ethos is just so vastly different from ours. Right. Not and realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Like nobody, nobody, you know, like friends, like plenty of people I know have written books that I haven't sold and nobody says they're not publishing them because the book is not well made. No. Right. Yeah. It's because it's because you don't have half your friends anymore. Right. That's right. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have the right friends or it's not the right hook or whatever, you know? Yeah. Or your, your platform. Yeah. yeah. Your platform is not appropriate. No, it's crazy. Um, I want to get back though to flight because I, I want people to know how good of a book this is. I really do. And Okay. So Flight is a family novel. And you've mm -hmm. said the family novel is a scary space to inhabit as a female writer. Let's, let's talk about this a little <laughs> bit because this book, which we didn't say earlier, what the difference between want and flight is that flight is a family novel. It comes from several different points of view. You're mm -hmm. constantly changing allegiances in this family. It's like a very like complicated book in terms of the craftsmanship, I imagine. So I, I want you to talk about like, why was it scary? I, I was thinking that it's because of the Jonathans, all of them, but go ahead. Tell me why. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, the Jonathans like talk about Jonathan Franzen's novel, uh, Crossroads starts on the same day as mine. It starts on December 22nd and it covers sort of a similar amount of time. And anyways, that's its own, that was its own complicated experience. But yeah, I mean, I think like these are not new ideas, but I think the problem is as much as we've been talking about these ideas, not much has changed about them, which is to say like, you know, we started to get early reviews and I started, I, was, I just said I was trying to get past anger, but, but I started sort of <laughs> throwing things because immediately all of the language was so recognizable and infuriating. They were nice. They were fine. They were totally fine yeah. reviews, but it was like, this is a lovely, book about motherhood. This is a quiet domestic novel. And it was like, why can't I just write a book about being alive? <laughs> you know, right. like, like why? Like, yes, it's in a house. So there's domesticity. There are mothers because it immediately, it's this, it's a thing that feels deeply recognizable in my body. And I think it feels recognizable. And, and I don't think it's as simple as gender, but, but certainly to every woman that I know, of sit back down. You know, it's just this feeling of like, okay, sure, yeah, sure, but over there in that corner, right? right? Over with the mother ladies, over with the domestic space. Like sh sure, and and Jen to your point, like this book was I mean, it was it was very hard to build. I thought about it a lot. I felt sort of like for better or worse, whatever happens over the next few weeks, like it was the best object that I had made as a writer. But also knowing the sort of packaging of the object, which which I've made my bed, right? Like it's a Christmas novel. It's a novel about love and feelings. And there are a lot of moms, right? But I, I don't know. It's, it's that deep desire to situate and locate the female as this thing instead of just a thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trying. It's, it's like you have to be soft. You're a lady. 
Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting because it because flight feel, felt to me from the first page like, and maybe this is way off, and you didn't intend this, but there's a, it, it feels violent almost. You know, it's about three siblings, and it felt very familiar, and and the tension was just right there. I, it, it's amazing to me that people would try to put you in that corner, even given that. Yeah, I mean, again, like I find <laughs> I find the daily experience of being alive kind of violent, and and I also think like it's a book. the The first line of the book is the husband asking the wife, like you left them alone in the apartment, right? Like there's because there is supposed to be this sense of fear, right? Because something eventually happens to a child. In yeah, I mean, again, like to me, I I, I tell students this thing that like it's it's your job as the writer to to figure out what your explosion is. Right. And in some books, an explosion is an explosion. And in some books is the barista like doesn't smile at you when you get your coffee. Right. But the terms of the job is the, of the writer is the same, which is to say you have to teach the reader the stakes and then the investments of the book such that when the explosion happens, you feel its impact. Right. So it's like if I want to do the barista thing, I have to teach the reader the particular sort of prickly sensitivities of this character such that when they stand up there, right, they sort of feel the fear. And by contrast, right, we read about explosions all the time and don't feel their impact, right? That's Mm. one of the reasons we write stories, right? So I, I read a lot of student fiction where it's like, big, terrible thing happened. But it's like, okay, but if, if we don't care about those people, if we don't understand what the sort of weight and texture of that loss before it happens, we'll sort of skim through it in the same way we skim through tragedy on the internet. Let's take a quick break for some ads. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. 
I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I, I wanted to also mention, because Flight Flight seems like it was a really complicated book to write. It involves multiple characters with complicated dynamics who all have children. Not all have children. Yeah. But I've read that you, that you, quote, wanted the reader to be on different people's teams at almost every beat, yeah. which you achieved. But how the fuck did you achieve that? <laughs> Yeah, you did. It's really cool. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I mean, I think it was it was it was really hard. I, you know, it was this constant process of, and I think it, <laughs> it was like good therapy. I mean, I think I, I believe, right? And I think this is one of the many gifts of being a teacher because I'm not sure I would do it in my everyday life. But I believe that if you spend enough time with most people, they will charm you. That you might you might not still like them. But they will sort of, they will surprise you and they will sort of do something where you'll be like, huh, I didn't see that coming, you know? And so I think it was, it was a matter of, I mean, I think first it, it had to start from the place. This is, this is much more base, but maybe that's useful, right? Which is to say that like, I think that there is, you know, whenever you really hate somebody, right? Yeah. Usually like I, the thing that you really hate is the thing. It's like why a lot of us dislike our mothers in moments. It's, it's, it's usually something that you know is inside of you too. Yeah. And you're mm -hmm. like terrified of it or upset by it. Right. Which is to say that I think most of our sort of petty grievances or not so petty grievances with people that we love come from like our own shit. Yep. Right. Yep. And so I think, again, all of these characters are constructions of mine. They all come from my own shit. Right. And so mm -hmm. this sort of like very hyper controlling type A character, and then the sort of character that just kind of wants to be a mom. Right. And then the artist who sort of loves art, but isn't sure it's worth anything. Right. Like all of those are impulses that live inside of me but then they became embodied and then I had to thread them through and try to think about, okay, but none of us are just that sort of awful, uncomfortable thing that, right? Like none of us are just controlling and anxious. We are also human and feeling and mushy and, you know, and so yeah. it was just sort of like I had these, I think, especially with those, I think with the four woman, women, because Quinn too is sort of a, a different version of compulsive that I find deeply recognizable. And so just to sort of say, okay, so all of these four women have these attributes that are, that are deeply recognizable to me, but now I need to sort of form them. And now I just need to sort of watch them move through space and knock up against one another in the way as we as humans do. And again, their trickiest moments of tension 
often come from their moments of overlap, right? Like the two moms' biggest moments of tension come from their status as mom and their sort of really uncomfortable desire to be good at being a mom, right? And it's hard to feel, it's hard not to judge other people's choices when they're different from your own, in part because you just want to do a good job, you know? Yeah. Right. Okay. So we have a lot of, we have a lot of listeners who also will want to write their own stories. Mm -hmm. You know, you teach writing. How do you teach writers to write? What's the most important first step? Okay. I think I've said this before, but I've come to believe it's the only, it's the only necessary thing, which is to say it's this combination of being merciless and merciful. So when my now 10 year old was a baby, I handed my husband like the pumped milk, right? And I took my book and my computer and I stomped down to the local coffee shop and I proceeded to cry and leak for about 45 minutes and then I stomped Mm -hmm. back home. But it was important to me that I show my entire family, including myself, that I would still be a writer, right? But I did nothing within that time. I like ate three pastries and cried and like looked at pictures of my baby on the phone. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the trick is, is that like, To be a writer, you have to inhabit some time and space when you're not writing, when you're like thinking or lying on the floor and hating yourself or reading books or whatever. But that is really, really hard to do as a grown up who like wants to be productive. Mm -hmm. So what I do is that I'm merciless in terms of so so my go to is early mornings again, because it's sort of a cheat and like my kids don't need me anyways at 430 anymore. So, so 430, really early in the morning, really early, not, not, not always to be fair. So I'm merciless about making the time, right. Which is to say that like at different times, depending on how much I'm working, it's 20 minutes or two hours or whatever. But within that time, if I'm home, my door is closed and everybody knows it's off limits or whatever, I'm merciless about sort of drawing that line. But then within that space, within that time, that is like the one time I would ever in my life allow myself to lie on the floor, right? Because like, if I'm, I should be doing laundry. I should be like, our dishwasher just broke. I should be doing dishes. You know what I mean? Like Uh, I've got, I should be grading papers. Like there's so many tasks I could be doing, but I'm not allowed to give myself shit for not doing those tasks in that sort of cordoned off space of time. I can go running. Sometimes I call my friend, right? I'm pretty open about how I spend that time because I think most of writing, at least for me, is like not writing, right? Like I write sort of pretty quickly, but I have to, like I think I've realized I have to like think about the book for about six to eight months for every six weeks of writing I get done. Hmm. But I have to take that thinking seriously. Wow. And when do you know you're when do you know you're ready to sit down and start writing? I think I'm always writing. It's just really bad and embarrassing, you know. <laughs> or like I'm, you know, I'm sort of like I'm tinkering and I'm taking notes or I'm writing longhand. But and this is the part where it's like I was telling someone the other day, I'm getting more and more yoga with Adrian in my old age. But this part does feel a little <laughs> magic in terms of like there is a point at which I feel ratcheted in. And at that point, it's like, no matter what I read, no matter what I watch, no matter what the moms at Pickup say, it all feels like it's about the book. Yes. All of a sudden. Yes. You know? Yes. And then I'm in. And then and then also it's worth saying that then is like, I mean, first, it's one of the reasons why I think my writing periods have to, my actual writing periods have to be so short is because when I'm ratcheted in like that, I'm awful. Yes. Mm. Yes. I'm like, my kids are asking for things and I'm like, what, huh? Yeah. Uh, uh, I burn things. I burn things 
anyways, but you know, I like I'm the cooking gets worse. Like I don't really like my husband talks and I'm like, really? Like we're talking, that's a thing, we're still doing okay. You know, like it's because <laughs> it's so precious. It's so precious when your brain lets you go to that place. Completely. Completely. Yes. yes. And yeah. no, it's like it is right. It needs to be protected. It just need you just need to be yeah. in the zone with it. And it's unfortunate that you have all these other commitments, but it is, it's like a it's magic. It's a gift. And you know, you cannot squander it. Like yes, it's just totally, yeah. totally. Yes. Yes. No. And my eight-year-old who is like a magician or a witch or something, she, she said to me the last time, the last time this happened, she was like, mommy, like at the exact moment, I'd like, I'd like ignored something she said. And she's like, mommy, if you had to pick us or your work, what would you choose? <laughs> and I was like, you, Bubby, you, Bubby. But like, but my brain was like, but not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not right this very second. <laughs> um, oh, um, how is getting older affecting your writing since we are all middle-aged ladies? How do you think getting older is affected? Do you think you could be writing the books you're writing now when you were no. younger? No, I think, I just think getting older is the greatest gift on earth. Like, do you know when your kid is like a baby, like one, and they learn the word baby, and then you're at the playground and they see a three-year-old and they're like, baby, baby, you know, like it was sort of like, we always think we're grown up, but we're not really grown up. And I feel like middle age is like the first realization of like, oh no, I was never grown up. Right. Like I, because I just, I, I didn't have the layers of experience, right. Because everything now is layers and that's so extraordinary. And it's so extraordinary for, for being a writer, right. Like I think, I think even like the layers of thinking, like, I think when you're, I don't know if everybody did this, but I have to embarrassingly admit that I thought this, like, I, I think when I was younger, I thought like my specific teenage pain was like, special or unique right. you know and it's like nah dude like most of what you experience is not special right and that's great that's great knowledge to possess as a writer right, right? right. and and again like you know it, to be less precious about the self is like an endless gift as a writer, right? Because you start from a place of the self, but I think like every draft is a process of sort of making a thing that you can give to someone else. And if you don't sort of value that idea of an offering or understand how really deeply difficult, complicated human communication is, you won't be as good at your job as a writer. Right. Right. And I think that age has, I just, I just, I can't, I've been reading Alice Monroe lately and I also read Canals Guard this summer and just, I just, I, I just sort of walk around and I'm like, time, man, like time is the <laughs> best thing. Oh, it'll fuck with you though. It, yeah, it will. It, I, it will fuck. It can yeah. fuck with you. I think oh, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the midlife, you know, my, this has nothing to do with anything, but last night my husband, I was, um, I was having a hot flash and I was like, oh, my tongue feels weird. And I was like, you know, actually one of the symptoms of menopause that happens to 33% of women is something called a burning tongue where your tongue just inexplicably starts burning all the time. And he was, he was a little bit high. And he said to me, um, menopause doesn't take place in any art created by men. Except in the most, in the most one dimensional way. Exactly. Except in like the most like derogatory, disparaging way. Yeah. Because women, I'm not, I'm just interrupt for a second. Women's mothers don't even talk to them about yeah. it. So men are not getting the information. Even if they wanted it, they might not know where to go. 
Yeah, well, and what's what's incredible about what both of you are, like, so so I was I was talking about this with regard to motherhood recently, and it and it was connected to this idea too of like how you if you write about motherhood you you immediately write a motherhood book or whatever, or right. like if you wrote about menopause you'd be writing a menopause book or whatever bullshit. But like, but I also think it's just instead of thinking about these things as the subject matter, I think it's interesting to shift it and think about them as like the terrain that you're exploring as you explore what it is to be alive, right? Yeah. Because like everybody's body as they age does weird, inexplicable, uncomfortable shit that proves to them that they're weaker than they thought they were. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And like that is narratively interesting and it's narratively useful to, at least to me in the, in the project that I'm interested in. Right. Because it's like bodies are just like endlessly exciting to me in terms of like opportunities to remind us that we all just like, you know, I always tell the students, I was like, well, are they hungry? Because if they're hungry, that's interesting. And you can make them cook and you can, you know, like, it's like, right. does the kid have to go to the bathroom because that's complicated or whatever. Right. So it's like, so yeah, I mean, I think menopause, motherhood, like, and what Kim, what you just said, it's, it's too, I think it's not to be sort of, I think sometimes I get on my high horse or whatever, but like, it's part of the problem. Like I think women writers, it is so ingrained. A student of mine said this and I just, I, and it was a man and cheers to him. We read this Carmen Maria Machado. We read the husband stitch, it's a classic Carmen Maria Machado. And, and, and he said, and it was so perfect. He was like, it is just that she is trying to live in a story that wasn't written for her. And I was mm. like, yes, well, <laughs> that is exactly what it is. And more than that, she's trying to live in a story that's doing damage to her, that's doing yeah. active, violent damage to her that she is complicit in because the story that she's been told is that she wants it, right? And so the way that I think this connects to women writers is that we understand that when we write, someone is watching and we want that person to give us a gold star. And the way that they give us a gold star is that if we perform femininity in the way that the male gaze likes to see femininity, right? And that includes preferably not motherhood. That includes a lot of desire pre about the age 35, but then after that, none at all, right? That it's, 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 it's just such a, it's such a specific idea of what femininity is and then again it's like if you're writing about menopause if you're writing about any of these things it's like okay sure but like over there yeah yeah right no I don't I was I said to Kim I don't talk about these issues except in this space I don't talk about it on social media I don't talk about it I don't write about it it's not because it's such a pigeonhole immediately it's such a turnoff yeah. to anybody, you know? And yeah. it's just like, yeah. it's just like, if you want people to check out, start talking about this shit. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's really true. Yeah. And and so that's the interesting thing because you can bring, I think as a writer, as a creator, as any kind of creator, you bring all this new experience as you get older to your work. No, I was just thinking about a book I was reading last year that um, early in the book, two people over 60 are like making out in the back of a cab on their way to one of their apartments to fuck. And I was like, wow, yeah, I've never seen that before. Desire over 55 or like you said, 35. Yeah. yeah. What was, do you remember what the book was? Um, Carry the Dog by Stephanie Gangi. Okay, I'm going to Or Gangi, G-A-N-G-I. I mean, I have a question for you, Jen, and I think maybe it's like a question, well, it's a question for all, right? Like, because 
what is it? What is it we're waiting? I was thinking the other day, I had this friend, again, I'm like on these tangents, but I had this friend in grad school who sometimes I would tell a story. There was like a particular type of story I would tell or like a story I would write or a thing I would say I wanted to do. And there was this very specific way she would gasp and say, Lynn. And I was like, <laughs> maybe like my interests as a writer are all like all traced back to my desire to make a person like that friend, like make that noise. Yeah. Right. Which is just to say like, why was she making that noise? (laughs) Like none of the things, none of the things like I would, I would, she would make that noise and I would feel a lot of shame and I would go home and I would like make my poor husband talk about it. But like, he's been married to me for so long. He would just be like, I don't know, you know, but like, but why do people make that noise when we talk about menopause or motherhood or, or bodies or, Well, I mean, it's like, I don't know. And I will say that as as I was just saying that to you, I realized that one of the things that I'm always concerned about, because this goes, this is, again, this is a very female situation. I'm always like, oh, I don't want to be too polarizing. Oh, I, because I'm also thinking as a business. I, no. I'm just thinking of you saying that. Well, no, here with you, I'm like that, but not in my writing, because yeah. I want the writing to reach the most people that it can, because I'm also a business-minded person. I want to be able right. to keep getting paid to work, right? right? And to write. And I think that there's a little bit of like the fawning and a little bit of people pleasing that's just ingrained in me. Like, oh, I don't want to get them. Don't want to make people make that sound. Don't right. want to be too disgusting. Don't want to make people to gasp. Don't want to like barf myself all over somebody, you know? Right. And I right. think that there's obviously a way to, to create wonderful art out of disgusting things. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to insinuate myself onto somebody too much in my art. And I also want it to be palatable to the, as most the, as many people as possible. But I also think like, and it's it actually comes back to the thing we talked about earlier, which is just like, where does the agency live, yeah. right? And, and, and I think also that comes back to age, right? Which is just to say, like, <laughs> the stuff I wrote when I was 19 and I was like, honesty, right? It was bad. Right, right, right. It felt like honesty to me. And it felt like, like, I'm sure it would have made that friend gasp, but like, it wasn't actually anything that was well-made or interesting. It was just, it was just sort of this raw sort of word vomit, basically, you know? And I also think like Kim sort of, you said earlier, and it feels like worth acknowledging all of the ways that age is, is really hard. And one of the ways that be like getting older as a woman is, is just that there sort of continued affirmation of how little anybody wants to look at you. Right. And, and that's mm-hmm. connected Jen to what you're saying about making art is it's like, well, how do you convince anybody to look at your art? Not least because it's not appealing to the male gaze, definitely add menopause, right? Like that's the answer, right? right. Like, no, it's, it's, it's not, but, but to say that like the more power and, and again, this is maybe a little, yoga with agent, but, but the more, more powerful, I think that you feel in the sentences, or at least this is what I've come to think. And also sort of structurally, I like, I'm sort of endlessly obsessed with the structures of novels. I think the more capable I feel of exploring those terrains in a way that hopefully doesn't leave too many people out. Right. Right. If you're writing first person, you're already putting your experiences through a filter, which is making it more interesting. It's not your diary, right? So yeah. it's like, how do I, how do I, you know, I play this up a little bit. I tone that down, whatever. How do you make people care about things they don't give a shit about, right? right. And so that's a harder job. It's just a harder job is the bottom yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah. 
How do you how do you tell your students and how do you tell yourself not to be destroyed by criticism or to keep it in its proper place? Um, you know, I think I think a couple of things. I think first it's like I became a significantly better teacher over the period of realizing that it was not my job to get everybody to like me. Mm -hmm. Right. Because when I was trying to get everybody to like me, I was like tap dancing and sort of, you know, doing all of these things It actually made me quite a bad teacher. Like it, it, it made it more difficult for me to sort of dig deeply into texts. It made it more difficult for me to have the conversations that sometimes I think I needed to have with students around their work, which is just to say, like the worst review I got for want the reviewer called, and it's also something to consider that I remember all of these words exactly, mm -hmm. but the reviewer called the narrator parasitic, narcissistic, and toxic. Um, and that was sort of a challenge to read. But what was interesting after spending a little time away from it is I read it again and I was like, oh no, actually he understood what I was doing quite a bit more than a couple of the other reviewers. He just hated it. Right. And, and actually that's fine. Right. Because because then I, I did my like I actually I made the book I wanted to make. He didn't maybe fully understand that it's not a critic's job to attack the character, but that's fine. But he he had the experience I wanted him to have. He just hated it. And so on those terms, it did not get those words out of my head, those words to live in my head. And it's a challenge, but it made it easier for me to sort of say I did my job. Right. And I think you, it's really important, and, and this is a thing I tell students a lot, is to sort of have a clear idea of the terms of your text, have a clear idea of the terms upon which you made your book and what you want your book to be. And then when you hear people criticize it, make sure, A, they're criticizing on its terms, right? Because if they're not, if they're not giving the book the time and energy, and again, I think writing criticism has been really useful for me in this and even like reading other critics responses to the same books I reviewed and sort of seeing them not come to those books on their terms. It's like, if they don't come to your, your book on its terms, their criticism is not interesting to you because right. they didn't, they wanted you to write a 500 page, you know, sweeping novel, but that's not what you ever, that's not what you wrote. Right. right? But right. if they are coming to your book on its terms and they think you've achieved it, whether they hated that achievement or not, is none of your business. Right. 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 The, the old, um, I wanted to like this, but you know, right. That's, <laughs> right. right. Or, or just like, I, I never wanted to like, you know, like right. I, yeah. I, I never, there's nothing about a white lady, you know, feeling tired. That's interesting to me as a critic, right? right. Like that was a, that was a criticism want got and it's like cool. Right. A lot of white ladies are tired and it felt like a worthwhile project to me. Right. Right. Well, because on some level they got it, right? right. Yeah. On yeah. some real level they got it. And so that's a whole lot better than criticism where people, you know, really didn't. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think too, like I tell my students, like our great your greatest fear should be like three stars. Eh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like like I'd much prefer like a, a sort of I mean, please don't go to Goodreads and do this to me, but like a bunch of one and two with sort of this whatever, like this woman with my first book, I will never forget. It was just unbearable, all caps, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but like, but, but I made you feel something. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's the job. Um, before we go, I just wanted, you read so much. 
Who are some writers that maybe we don't know about that we should know about? Oh, oh, that's good. I, so there's this Catalan, Catalan writer called Katixa Aguirre, who actually, speaking of motherhood as terrain, wrote this book called Mothers Don't. And actually, she she's published from this publisher called Unnamed Press, who who does mostly books in translation. And they're doing this really cool thing right now where they have a translator, um, because translators are sort of woefully undersung. They have a translator make a triptych of their translations just to sort of show like the translator's interest and also the translator's mm-hmm. abilities across books. So uh, the the translator of that book is a woman named Katie Whitmore, and she picked three books. And I'm forgetting the the other the another one's name's Wolfskin. Anyways, if you look up Unnamed Press and their triptych, I think it's I think it's really cool. Um, and a, and a book that's getting, that got plenty of attention, but I, I still want it to get more. I just reviewed a book by Namwali Serpel called The Furrows. And I just thought it was that sort of rare book that made me reconsider what a book can be. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's really exciting. Yeah. So cool. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been just great. Yeah. Lynn, you're the best. This was awesome. No, thank you guys so much. Good luck with flight. We wish you all oh, the best. It's you. a great book and, thank you know, you. take a lot of deep breaths over these next couple of weeks. And yeah. Yeah. I got my, <laughs> Ramon, I was telling Ramon, I was up at three. He was like, you didn't have your gummy. Did you have your gummy? And I was like, well, I, I took it. I took it early because I needed it for trick or treating so that it's worn off. Obviously, you needed it for I mean, how could you not? Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms, especially Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find our show. It makes a difference to our listenership. If you want to support the production of the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We do live events there. We put up bonus episodes there. We don't always do anything there. <laughs> we we just ask for support for listeners there. Um, if you want to follow the show on social media, you can go to at EIF podcast on Instagram. We're on Facebook with a private Facebook group. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. If you want to email the show, we're at everything is fine. The podcast at gmail.com. You can find Kim on her blog, girls of a certain age.com. And you can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the wonderful Natalie Rivera. Thank you, Natalie again. And we'll talk to you next week. Even on a budget quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.